Ask Sherwin-Williams and get 30% off Duration and Super Deck products May 17th through the 20th. That means 30% off our most popular color family, blue. Psychologists have found it to be soothing and relaxing, which makes it especially great for bedrooms and bathrooms. And of course, get 30% off all of our other colors. Shop the sale online or visit your neighborhood Sherwin-Williams store. Click the banner to learn more. Retail sales only. Some exclusions apply. See store for details. Life is a highway, and on it there will be many chicken sandwiches. But there's only one crispy. so go ahead and hit the turn signal if you know about this juicy gem of a detour. With the cost of pretty much everything on the rise lately, I've been thinking a lot about how price tags and quality relate to each other, or sometimes don't. So recently, my podcasting colleague and former teacher, economist Steve Levitt, told me a story that he'd told on Freakonomics Radio way back in 2010 called Do More Expensive Wines Taste Better? He gave me the short version. So, Bapu, I was a junior fellow in the Harvard Society Fellows, which is an amazing opportunity. It's three years as a young researcher, no obligations except to show up to fancy dinners and to a weekly wine tasting. That's your total obligation. And they have this enormous budget for wine. I, I don't care about wine. I can't tell a good wine from a bad wine. So being an economist, I said, hey, why don't we do a blind wine tasting once just to be a lot of fun? And they said, oh, that would be fun. Why don't we go ahead and do that? What they didn't know is that I had a trick up my sleeve. The wine cellar that we kept had all the very fancy wines. Then I had our wine steward pick out some excellent examples of some particular varietal. And then on the way to the wine tasting, I bought the cheapest bottle of wine I could find at the liquor store of that same kind of grape. He put that cheap wine into one decanter. He put a fancy wine in another decanter. And then he put a second fancy wine into two of the other decanters. These were now identical. So altogether... Four decanters, three wines, okay? And then I had people taste each of those four decanters and make comments about how good it was. The Harvard fellows sniffed and sipped. I imagine they savored, they swirled, they contemplated a whole range of appropriate adjectives. And then they wrote down their reviews and ratings for each of the four decanters. And so then I, I quickly went in the other room and I, I crunched the numbers. And it turned out that these wine snobs, not only did they not have preferences for the expensive wine, but they had no idea when they were drinking the same wine twice that it was the same wine because they rated it very differently, as differently as they rated the different bottles of wine. So I triumphantly emerged from the room and uh, reported my results to the people around, and it went very badly. Well, some folks took it in stride, but not most. One fancy academic insisted afterwards that, actually, he had a cold. I had really, I had not anticipated that in this group of academics, the search for truth was not paramount when it came to wine. From the Freakonomics Radio Network, this is Freakonomics MD. I'm Bapu Jenna. I'm an economist and I'm also a medical doctor. Each episode, I dissect an interesting question at the sweet spot between health and economics. Today is actually not about wine, but something else. When it comes to our health care, 
Do prices tell us anything about quality? The number one financial concern for Americans is not their education, food, housing. It is healthcare. And if you're a healthcare economist searching for the holy grail, where the price of care is transparent and people pick their healthcare based in part on that information, you might want to be careful what you wish for. You know, one of the really scary parts for me about this paper was I didn't want this paper to be the excuse used by every hospital with high prices. Back to my conversation with Steve Levitt. The reason I wanted to hear that story is because it makes me think of a problem that we have in healthcare. So let me ask you, I'm sure you go on, you shop on Amazon. And when I go on Amazon, let's say I'm trying to buy like some Tupperware. I look at the reviews, I look at the prices. And, you know, one thing you're probably struck by is there's tons of information about the quality of the products that you're going to buy. There's been this movement to try and tell consumers, in this case, patients, what the prices are of the different hospitals that they may go to or the different types of healthcare services they may get. Like if you knew the precise quality of every single hospital or every single place that could give you a flu vaccine, would you be more inclined to use price in those settings? If I'm going to get the flu vaccine, sure, maybe I, I, I'd rather have a flu vaccine for, for $7.99 instead of for $12.99. Your story made me think like, you know, if you tell people prices of wine bottles or healthcare services, are they going to come to similar conclusions? What is the rule? You always choose the second cheapest. Is that the rule? I always hear that, that people always choose the second cheapest wine. That's another colleague of mine, this time from my day job. My name is Ativ Marotra. I'm a professor of healthcare policy and medicine at Harvard Medical School. Ativ studies the relationship between price and quality in healthcare services. The number one financial concern for Americans is not their education, food, housing, it is healthcare. And so it's not unreasonable to think that there would be a lot of interest in this kind of information so that they could choose where to go. To shed light on the question, Ativ has worked on a lot of studies about the price transparency tools that currently exist for healthcare. He's interested in how Americans interact with them when shopping for their care. So, sure, on Amazon, you can see, for example, if the iPhone case that you're thinking about buying is being offered at a competitive price. You can figure out if other buyers have found the same case sturdy and attractive. If you're looking on Amazon Marketplace, you can actually see if the seller is known to ship quickly and reliably. In other words, at the end, you have all the information you need to hit the purchase button with confidence. But should we expect the same model to work with healthcare? If we give people the information, will they act on price? The consumer is very powerful, and uh, this is going to make them more powerful. This is a presidential press event that Donald Trump did back in November of 2019. So I signed, as you know, an executive order, historic. And we're requiring price transparency in healthcare, forcing companies to compete for your business. Our goal was to give patients the knowledge they need about the real price of healthcare services. They'll be able to check them, compare them, go to different locations. 
so they can shop for the highest quality care at the lowest cost. On the day the order was fully rolled out, Trump tweeted, quote, Enjoy all the extra money you will have. Atif Marotra understands where the enthusiasm came from. This idea of consumer-directed health care has been part of the health policy debate for decades now. One reason is especially important. There is tremendous, tremendous price variation within communities. For an MRI of the lower leg or a colonoscopy or any procedure, you can sometimes see two, three, fourfold differences in the price from one hospital to the other. So there is the potential to save a tremendous amount of money by choosing selectively. Ativ and his colleagues have studied the impact of these sorts of tools, which inform patients about the prices of different types of care they may need. Many of these tools are introduced by employers, and so we will compare them to a set of employers that look otherwise similar but did not introduce the tools. We'll compare all the employees of the intervention group versus the employees of the other group, the control group, and we'll look over time to see the changes in where they get care and for those who offer the tool, how they use the tool. To make the approach as narrow and controlled as possible, Ativ looks at what he calls shoppable services, like radiology or lab tests, medical procedures that many people believe are basically the same wherever you go. First, it's ideally something in healthcare where the average American doesn't really perceive a quality difference. So if someone's going to operate on you, you're, you're really worried about the quality differences. But if you go for a, a basic laboratory test, a complete blood count or CBC, as we call it in healthcare, it doesn't really matter that much. We're talking about something like an MRI, something non-invasive, something where a machine gives out a reading, and then I can take that reading and go find the best person to read the MRI anywhere. Steve Levitt again. Sure, I'd rather have that MRI done more cheaply than more expensively. There's more to Ativ's research, though. The second part is that ideally that service is less than the deductible. For a lot of healthcare, say a knee surgery, it's way above the deductible. So I'm going to have to pay the full deductible or whatever's left on my deductible for the year, no matter what. And then all the price differences are going to be borne by the health plan for me. And so I don't really care. Studies show that people will choose to save money on straightforward things like buying generic drugs. That's because typically there are clear savings with no sacrifices or risks. But Ativ and his colleagues have done a lot of work over the last eight years that reveals something different. In the studies that we have done on the impact of price transparency tools in net, we have not seen any substantive impact on both where patients get care and overall spending. Let me say that again because it's important. Giving people information about the prices of medical care doesn't seem to lead them to shop with their feet, to find the cheapest options for care. So why aren't people using these tools? It's the million-dollar question. Why isn't this really working? No one, including Ativ, is sure yet. But his research has identified three clear takeaways. First, most people don't know that price transparency tools exist. But even if they do depending on the study, up to maybe 12% of patients who are offered such a tool used it. 
And after uh, a couple months, they forgot about the tool. But here's the biggest surprise. When folks do use the price transparency tools, on average, those people do not end up choosing the less expensive option. So, in other words, even when people have good information about the different prices they may be charged for a given lab, radiology exam, or procedure, they often don't pick the place with the lowest price. Maybe that wouldn't come as a surprise to you when we're talking about a a specialized procedure like a colonoscopy, because, well, you know, who wants a bargain basement colonoscopy? But this lack of shopping based on price is also true for things that are far less specialized and that are much more uniform, like lab tests or imaging. It's hard to know exactly why that is, but one thing is, when we're getting medical care, most of us are primarily concerned with quality. We're far more likely to follow the referrals, the recommendations from our doctors or other people we trust, even if that means paying more. And the reason that price comparison tools might not steer people to picking the lowest price option is because those same tools don't really help us assess quality, at least in a way that's convincing to people. I mean, look, it's a lot easier to find reliable reviews of iPhone cases or Tupperware than to figure out which lab or imaging facility will do the best job for us. Most of these price transparency tools do not have quality information that is very useful for the patient. I don't think that price transparency initiatives have a lot of legs in the long term. So in the absence of good information on quality, maybe some people look at price as a signifier of quality. In that case, they might even choose to spend more. After all, almost everywhere in your life, there is some relationship between price and quality. If I buy a car and one car costs 50000 and another car costs $550, I can almost guarantee you that the $50,000 car is going to be much better. Coming up, let's look at one of those bigger ticket items. Are higher price hospitals any better? I think it's very, very telling that most of the stuff we buy, we've got better information on price and quality than we do for healthcare. We'll talk about some new evidence after the break. This is Freakonomics MD. If you're on a GLP-1, you're probably loving the results. But how do you feel? All of those side effects can take a toll. So now what? Get to GNC. We'll help with solutions to address those side effects and keep you going on your journey. GNC. McDonald's presents Burger Reviews by Hamburglar. Today's review, the hotter, juicier, classic burgers. Mr. Hamburglar. Bravo, bravo. He said, of all the McDonald's burgers I've ever hamburgled, these are the hottest, juiciest, and tastiest. Bravo. Hurry in and enjoy one of our 350 bundles, like a daily double and small fries for a limited time. Price and participation may vary. Cannot be combined with any of the offer comparison of prior classic burgers. Ba-da-ba-ba-ba. Your home is your place of peace. It's clean. It's welcoming. (sighs) And it's definitely not crawling with invading insects if you use Ortho Home Defense Max. Use it indoors on non-porous surfaces to treat and prevent cockroaches, spiders, and ants for up to 12 months. So your home can stay your place of peace, your work-from-home office, and your family's headquarters. Kill bugs inside, keep bugs outside, and love your home. Visit ortho.com for more. 
I'm Bapu Jenna, and earlier in the episode, you heard me chatting with Steve Levitt about the relationship between price and quality. So let me ask you one question. Do you have a prediction of whether or not higher price hospitals would be better in terms of measurable outcomes? Because there's a paper that looks at this, and I'm curious to see if you can predict what they found. I would not expect that price would be a very good indicator of quality. That would be my hunch. This research paper I asked Levitt about was released just this past February by the National Bureau of Economic Research. It's called, Do Higher-Priced Hospitals Deliver Higher-Quality Care? Potentially the only paper on the topic, I think, yeah. A copious literature. That's Zach Cooper. He's a health economist at Yale and a co-author of the study. The hospital sector is an enormous share of the economy, 6%. So it's huge amounts of money, really important. And we've seen a problem with hospital prices in the U.S. They've been going up quite a bit over time. They vary a lot within and across regions, even for things where we don't think quality varies, like MRI scans. So the goal was broadly to know whether patients get better outcomes when they go to higher-priced hospitals. Better outcomes is a simple term, but it's complex to measure if you think about it. A good outcome could mean you recover more quickly, more completely, with fewer long-term side effects. Or it could mean that you had a really good experience with the care that was provided to you, or both. People vary in what they value more. So Zach and his co-authors zeroed in on the most basic element that everyone cares about. Did the patient leave the hospital alive? But they faced another problem, too, in how they designed their study. Patients who were treated at higher-priced hospitals might be different from those treated at lower-priced hospitals. Patients aren't sort of randomly assigned to hospitals. Their choices are real-world choices where, you know, we might be worried that, for example, sicker patients go to better and higher-priced facilities. Or that wealthier or higher-educated people end up at higher-priced hospitals. This could bias their results. To get around this problem, they focused on emergency room visits. First of all, ER trips are more likely to be medically urgent. There's a possibility the patient might actually die. Second of all, the patient is less likely to have selected the hospital themselves because there's usually an ambulance that picked up the patient and brought them in. Zach calls this the secret sauce. Ambulance companies are largely randomly assigned to calls. It just sort of happens to be which car is near you at the moment. That means that even if an ambulance company has preferences for which facilities they deliver to, it's still random which ambulance company is going to have a vehicle closest to a person in need at any moment. So the choice of destination hospital is randomly selected by how all the ambulances from all the companies are distributed around town. Zach and his colleagues collected all this real-world data on emergency room visits and ambulance dispatch patterns. They knew the outcomes of patients brought to the emergency room and admitted to the hospital, who lived, who died, and they knew the hospital preferences of the ambulances that picked those patients up. Their goal was to figure out a hospital's mortality rate based only on those patients who were brought to that hospital randomly, and then to use that mortality rate as a signal of a hospital's quality. More patients dying in a particular hospital meant lower quality and vice versa. 
At the end of all this, what Zack and his friends discovered about price and quality was closely connected to another element that they were looking at, market competition. The U.S. government regulates the prices charged for Medicare and Medicaid patients. But for the privately insured, hospitals negotiate prices with insurers. And as a result, these prices are arguably more market-driven. In most areas of commerce, we rely on business competition to generate competitive prices. But for the last 30 years, the hospital sector has been acting a little differently. We've seen waves of mergers that have left many markets highly concentrated. A region that's highly concentrated, a purely monopoly market, the hospital only has one competitor. In an unconcentrated market, think of a a hospital that's surrounded by other similar hospitals and, and no single provider has a dominant market position. Zach and his co-authors took every hospital in the country, one by one, and they looked at the area surrounding each. And we said, we're going to travel a a distance of 30 minutes travel time, and we're going to see how many competitors and and what the market shares are of different hospitals within those 30-minute travel times around each hospital. There's now a live document where you can look up the measure of consolidation for every hospital in the country. We've linked to that document on our show page at Freakonomics.com. I think part of the reason we put this data out there is so that folks can go have a look and, and then have a think about you know, what that means about the type of care they're getting and, and the price they're paying. The hospitals didn't love that. The measure of market consolidation is known as the herfindahl hirschman Index. Let's call it HHI. A market with an HHI of less than 1,500 is considered a competitive marketplace. Multiple sellers are vying for your business. An HHI above 2,500 is considered to be concentrated. It turns out that almost 70% of the hospitals in the U.S. are located in highly concentrated markets with an HHI greater than 4,000. And lots of hospitals in smaller cities can have an HHI as high as 10,000, which implies a 100% market share. So what does that mean? It means that hospitals in these regions don't face any local competition and their prices may reflect that. That's just a pure monopoly. So after all that, what did Zach find? The first surprise was that going to these higher priced hospitals in competitive markets really did lead to to better outcomes. And the the scale of that was pretty dramatic. You were 47% more likely to survive that visit. And that's that's an enormous amount. I mean, that's, if I had a, a device or if I had a drug that lowered hospital mortality by 47%, right? You'd be giving me a Nobel Prize. So that was that was surprise one. In competitive markets where there were lots of hospitals competing with one another, price was a signal of quality. Higher price hospitals had lower mortality. Surprise two was that in competitive markets, the higher prices charged by the most expensive hospitals were also cost effective. You know, we did the sort of awful thing that economists do where you you measure the additional spending per life saved. And there's just a link between price and quality that that I think many of us, frankly, didn't expect to see. But the third surprise? In hospitals that weren't facing competition, going to these high-priced facilities really jacked up your spending. So a 52% increase in, in spending and just didn't lead to any difference in outcomes. And given that 
half the country is in a market where their hospital doesn't face competition, it tells you that there's something going on that we should be very, very worried about. Zach and his colleagues found that in markets that were not very competitive, higher-priced hospitals led to greater hospital spending without any measurable reduction in mortality. So according to Zach's approach, in those markets, price was not a signal of quality. In more competitive markets, it was. This might be because in less competitive markets, hospitals can sometimes have greater market power, which allows them to charge higher prices to insurers and patients. In those markets, price may simply be a reflection of a hospital's ability to charge higher prices than it is a measure of quality. You know, one of the really scary parts for me about this paper was I didn't want this paper to be the excuse used by every hospital with high prices. And so I think it's important to say, like, this paper does not show that raising hospitals' prices is going to lead to more quality. Paper doesn't show that cutting hospitals' prices is going to harm quality. What it really, I think, highlights is that when hospitals face competition, we end up with a price that is related to quality. The first lecture that I give to my undergraduate students at Harvard at the beginning of the semester is about the quality of healthcare, how to define it, how to measure it. To do that, you need to understand what quality means in general. Take your smartphone, for example. You want it to work well for your needs, have good reception, good sound quality, good internet access. You want your phone to be effective. You want it to work fast and be up to date. In other words, be timely. You also don't want your phone to blow up on a plane, so it needs to be safe. And the apps I have on my phone are different from the ones you have on yours. Our phones are personalized. It's also helpful if the phone's affordable. And if only the wealthiest, most educated people in society had access to phones, that might pose an issue of equity. Turns out that those same measures of quality apply to healthcare. The Institute of Medicine, in one of its landmark reports called crossing the quality chasm, defined high-quality care as care that's effective, safe, efficient or affordable, timely, personalized, and equitable. So now that we have a framework for thinking about quality, the next question I ask my students is, how do you measure it? Well, the standard way is to think about three things. The structure of care, whether a hospital has an ICU, for example, the process by which that care is provided, So how long does it take for antibiotics to be given to patients who have a pneumonia? And of course, outcomes. Do patients live or die? With larger and better data, economists and health policy researchers have been able to improve our measurement of quality, so much so that the federal government and insurers actually use these measures to try and assess the quality of hospitals and doctors. But these methods aren't perfect, and a lot of people, including some who've been on this show, are working to improve them. So, with all that said, how exactly do our two economists, Steve Levitt and Zach Cooper, shop for a hospital if they need one? I'm not a person who has a lot of experience, personally, with going to hospitals. I'll tell you one thing I would not do would be to try to save money on the hospital. I would look for a hospital that does a lot of what I'm getting. And I would probably ask a handful of physicians who I trusted about where they would go. But I I can tell you where I wouldn't be going. 
I wouldn't be going to any hospital that that is shielded from competition. There you have it. That's it for today's show. If you enjoyed this episode, check out an earlier one called How Can You Choose the Best Doctor? Coming up next week on Freakonomics MD, what do tap dancing and surgery have in common? You don't have to think about it. You just do it. It really is like time melts away. So both require a high level of focus. But what happens when this extreme concentration is broken, particularly in the operating room? And what does this mean for patients? I thought you were going to ask me, should we have a policy that surgeons don't operate on their birthdays? Our next episode will get into the effects of multitasking and distraction in the world of medicine. Until then, thanks to all of you for listening, writing in, and supporting the show. If you can, leave a review for Freakonomics MD wherever you get your podcasts. It really helps us out. Freakonomics MD is part of the Freakonomics Radio Network, which also includes Freakonomics Radio, No Stupid Questions, and People I Mostly Admire. All our shows are produced by Stitcher and Renbud Radio. This episode was produced by Sarah Lilly and mixed by Eleanor Osborne. Our senior producer is Julie Canfer. Our staff also includes Allison Craiglow, Greg Rippin, Gabriel Roth, Rebecca Lee Douglas, Morgan Levy, Zach Lipinski, Ryan Kelly, Jasmine Klinger, Emma Terrell, Lyric Bowditch, Jacob Clementi, Alina Coleman, and Stephen Dubner. Our music was composed by Luis Guerra. To find a transcript, links to research, and a newsletter sign-up, go to Freakonomics.com. If you like this show or any other show in the Freakonomics Radio Network, please recommend it to your family and friends. That's the best way to support the podcasts you love. As always, thanks for listening. Never go to a hospital (laughs) if you have any choice. Only (laughs) when you become unconscious and other people take to the hospital. Other than that, don't ever set foot in a hospital. The Freakonomics Radio Network. The hidden side of everything. Stitcher. Ashley's Memorial Day mattress sale is going on now. Save big on select adjustable mattress sets. Up to $1,200 on Beautyrest Black. Up to $800 on Purple. And up to $500 on Tempur-Pedic. Plus get 72-month special financing with select in-store mattress purchases made with your Ashley Advantage Synchrony credit card between May 14th and June 3rd. Visit your local Ashley store or ashley.com for better sleep and savings. Only at Ashley. Subject to credit approval. Minimum monthly payments required. No minimum purchase required. See store for details. Hi, it's Martha Stewart. You know, I spend a lot of time thinking about dirt. At 3 a.m.? At all hours of the day, really. What people don't know is that not all dirt is the same. You need dirt with the right kind of nutrients. New miracle Grow organic raised bed and garden soil is so dense, so full of nutrient-rich, high-quality ingredients. miracle Grow is simply the best. 